Well, uh, friends, I'm going to invite you to grab your beverages and come on back in and take a seat as we continue with our time together this morning. My name's Brad, and uh, I'm part of our teaching and leadership team here at Jericho Ridge. And I don't know what your history or your background is, but I grew up in a tradition that valued storytelling and that valued a particular type of storytelling called the personal testimony. And for those unfamiliar with it, the testimony is the kind of story of someone's personal journey and encounter with Jesus. And it was usually structured as some kind of a before and after uh, story. And so they painted the picture of their life before they met Jesus, and then what happened, and then after that. And it became clear to me, the more people I heard tell their personal story, that we had a tendency in this tradition to prefer dramatic backstories with dark and reckless pasts turned around in a sudden moment of blazing light where the person met Jesus and everything changed and now they no longer suffered with any besetting sins anymore. That was my sort of recollection of the testimony. And as a teenager, I listened to people tell their testimonies and the more testimonies I heard, the bigger the question became in my mind, is my testimony dramatic enough? Maybe I should add some drama into my testimony. I mean, the downside when you hear other people describe radical conversion experiences, more radical than your own, is that sometimes you begin to doubt, is your conversion experience, is your encounter with Jesus genuine? And for me, I came to faith as a child. I hadn't robbed any banks or done any cocaine pre-conversion. That I can remember anyways. But I can remember a moment kneeling in my parents' living room in northern BC in Dawson Creek and in our home. And uh, my parents, who themselves were brand new Christians, sharing this story from a children's Bible about Noah's ark and how God rescued Noah's family. And all I knew in that moment is that I wanted to be rescued. So faith comes to people in different ways. Sometimes it comes in very dramatic ways where God steps in and rescues someone from a life that was headed in a very dark path. Sometimes faith comes slowly and comes gently and quietly and early. But it's also true that some people can't pinpoint a specific moment in their journey, in their before and after journey. But they know that they know that Jesus lives in them and they're trusting Christ for salvation. And for them, it's maybe more like a journey. Puritan preacher Thomas Watson once wrote, the Lord does not tie himself to a particular way or use the same order 
with all. He comes sometimes in a still small voice, sometimes dramatically. Some have had godly parents and sat under the warm sunshine of religious education and often they do not know how or when they were called. The Lord just secretly and gradually instilled grace into their hearts as dew falls unnoticed in drops. In other words, if you have a boring testimony, that's okay. Because we're going to see today that when it comes to that experience of meeting Jesus and conversion, it's actually not the outward circumstances of it that's the amazing thing. It's the grace that God gives us that is amazing. And in that sense, there is no such thing as a dull or boring salvation. All is grace. Well, we're looking this fall here at Jericho at the New Testament book of Galatians. And Galatians is one of the earliest books written in the first century after Jesus lived, died, and rose again. It was written by one of the early leaders in the Christian movement, a man by the name of Paul. And Paul was a missionary. He was an apostle. And he'd planted a Christian community or communities in the region of Galatia, which is in modern-day Turkey. And then he goes on and plants other communities in other places. And he hears from the church in Galatia that there's trouble brewing. And so he writes this letter to try and address some of that reality. And in this little church, this little new community of Jesus followers, there's two primary groups of people that we met last week. There's those who did not possess any Jewish heritage at all, ethnically or culturally, and then there were those who did grow up Jewish and then identified uh, with Jesus as the Messiah. But the problem that Paul sees in the book of Galatians is that some of those Jews or those who had Jewish heritage are now arguing and saying that in order to become a real Christian, to have had a real conversion experience, you need to now follow the Jewish laws around things like kosher eating or Sabbath keeping or circumcision. But the Christians say, from a non-Jewish background, say, wait a minute, if I wasn't a Jew before I met Jesus, why do I have to follow the Jewish laws after I met Jesus? And so that's one of the driving questions that Paul's writing about in this letter. And in order to help them answer that, Paul says, listen, I'm going to share my personal story with you. But he does this in a way that helps us understand how God works, not only in Paul's life, but also in our lives and in our world as well. And our focus today is going to be on the kinds of testimony stories that we tell and what's going on and not going on before, during, and after those moments. So turn with me in your Bibles or on your devices to Galatians chapter 1, and we're going to pick up in verse 10. 
I'm reading from the New Living Translation where Paul says, obviously, I'm not trying to win the approval of people because people were accusing Paul of just dumbing things down. Not, I'm saying you don't need to follow those Jewish laws because Paul just wants to make it super easy for you to be a Christian. He says, I'm not trying to win the approval of people, but God. If pleasing people were my goal, well then, I wouldn't be Christ's servant. So dear brothers and sisters, I want you to understand that the gospel message I preach is not based on mere human reasoning. I received my message from no human source and no one taught me. Instead, I received it by direct revelation from Jesus Christ. So Paul begins his testimony by reminding them that he had a unique experience that led him to saving faith. It was direct revelation. He didn't come to saving faith by an apologetics seminar or someone sitting him down and explaining the four spiritual laws to him or listening to Christian radio. He didn't even come to God's family by someone preaching or teaching. He came to be part of God's family by a direct personal encounter with Jesus. And this is recorded, and Paul tells this story in the book of Acts chapter 9, on the road to Damascus. You see, Paul, as he's going to let us know in a few minutes or a few verses, he was staunchly opposed to all things Jesus. In fact, he took it upon himself to go from city to city and persecute those who followed Jesus. And so he was on one of those journeys up to a city called Damascus, going to throw Christians in jail, and on that road, in that part of his life, Christ appeared to him, and he's knocked clean off of his horse. He's blinded by the light. He hears a voice that says to him, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And Paul experiences this massive and radical life change. We see within a week, he's in the city of Damascus, preaching in the streets that Jesus is Lord of all, that Jesus is the Messiah. And Acts 9.21 says, all who heard him were amazed at his before and after story. Now, you might look at that and say, well, I don't know, Brad, how many people today have a direct encounter with Jesus. And if that's a question for you, you should talk to Gary and Betty Stevenson, who are supported workers with Jericho. And they work among Muslim background believers. And many Muslims in our world today report a direct encounter with Jesus, a vision where God appears to them in God's mercy and reveals truth to them and they come to saving faith. It's incredible that Jesus is still doing that kind of work in our world today. And it's this part of Paul's story that strikes me. And we see the first of four truths that we're going to learn about conversion today. And the first truth about conversion is that Conversion is always more about the who than 
the how. How a person encounters Jesus is less important than that they encounter Jesus. Because if you look through the pages of Scripture, we see a myriad of styles and structures and types of conversion experiences. Zacchaeus, the tax collector, he, he has a conversion of his wallet. Under Philip's spirit-led instruction, the Ethiopian eunuch riding in a chariot has a conversion of his intellect as the scriptures are opened and explained to him and he's baptized. Looking in the Old Testament, the king and the people of Nineveh, when Jonah the prophet goes to them and declares, you need to repent. They have a conversion away from injustice and violence. In Acts chapter 10, Cornelius and his household have a conversion experience based on a personal experience that Peter shares with them and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit in power. But no matter how the circumstances or how salvation comes, the focus in the scriptures is always on the who that they're encountering. The story is always about Jesus more than it is about the person. And there's a massive variety that we see in the way that people prayed, the timing that it took, the age that they came to faith, the level of drama, the background, all of those things, there's variety in. But what's consistent is that they meet Jesus. Famous atheist turned author and a strong apologist for the Christian movement in the 20th century, C.S. Lewis, talked about his own personal encounter with God this way. And he said, one day I was being driven to the zoo on a sunny morning. And when I set out, I did not believe Jesus is the son of God. And when we reached the zoo, I did. Yet I had not exactly spent the journey in thought nor in great emotion. Emotional is perhaps the last word we can apply to some of the most important events. It's more like when a man after a long sleep, still lying motionless in bed, becomes aware that he is now awake. See, Lewis's conversion was not dramatic in the way that Paul's was. He described it in other places as, as if you went to sleep on a night train and in one country you went to sleep and then the overnight train took you to another country and then you woke up in the next morning and you knew that you were in another country but you couldn't remember that moment of crossing the border. And he says for him that's what his encounter with God was like. He knew that it had happened. He knew that he was convinced Jesus was Lord but he couldn't name a specific moment in that journey when it happened. You see, sometimes I think in contemporary Christianity, we become obsessed with the wrong things and trying to pinpoint and gather the wrong things. Well, did they, did they say the prayer, the exact, what words did they say? Was their head bowed? Were their eyes closed? Did we put it in a database somewhere? And while we want to avoid false or forced decisions, I think it can be helpful for us to just step back from some of those questions for a moment and remind ourselves the real question is, 
are people finding and following Jesus? That's the target. That's why we exist as a church, friends. We want to be a place here in Willoughby and in Clayton where those who are spiritually seeking can find their way. We want to be a beacon of hope for the weary and for the wary. And as we do this, we're always keeping in mind that it's about the message and about the response, not about the moment or even about the messenger. See, if you're ever asked at Jericho to prepare your testimony, either for a moment of baptism or to share with other people here to encourage them, I'll give you a hint. When you write your testimony, Jesus should always be the hero of the story, not you. Because it's always about the message that you responded to and that you met Jesus, not the moment necessarily or the messenger. So Paul goes on to talk about some of his before portion. Look at Galatians 1 verses 13 and following. Paul says, you know, you, I told you guys what I was like when I followed the Jewish religion, how I violently persecuted God's church. I did my best to destroy it. I was far ahead of my fellow Jews in zeal for the traditions of my ancestors. Even before I was born, God chose me and called me by his marvelous grace, and it pleased him to reveal his son to me so that I would proclaim the good news to the Gentiles. You see, Paul says, I had massive zeal. I was passionate. But he says also that zeal and activity cannot get you to where you want or need to go. It's not the activities that you do that gets you into God's family. You cannot serve or give or act your way into God's family. You can't give money in the offering or to the capital campaign and hope that somehow that'll get you in God's favor. You can't care for the poor and go to Guatemala and somehow feel like that, that somehow that's going to get you into God's good books. Can't read your Bible faithfully so that you get God to love you anymore. All of those are good things to do, don't get me wrong. But if you think that doing those things forms the basis of a relationship with Jesus, then you're headed in the wrong direction. Because Paul says, hey, if that was it, if zeal was what got us there, if activity and passion was what it needed, I was at the head of the class. I was more zealous than anybody, he says. But I'm not playing that game anymore. Because when it comes to conversion, here's the second thing to remember. It is not about what we do, but about what God in Christ has done for us. See, notice the language switch that Paul makes. 
before in verse 11 and 12, he's talking about, I did this. I preached, I received, I received it by direct revelation. I followed the Jewish religion. I violently persecuted. I did this. I was far ahead of my zeals. Verse 15, he switches. But before I was born, and then all of the language becomes about what God has done. Before I was born, God chose me. Before I even did anything, God called me by his marvelous grace, Paul says. God revealed his son to me, or some translations say, in me. Because remember, Paul's writing this book to a group of people who are being told that in order to be on God's side, God's good side, in order to be part of God's family, there's a whole series of stuff you have to do. Otherwise, you don't get in the club. Observe Jewish ceremonial practices, food laws, etc. And to all of those things, Paul says, ah, no. Salvation cannot be about what you do. It is, in other places, he says, a gift of God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And that makes the Christian message quite distinct from other religious systems and structures because many other religions, the promise is, well, if you will do these things, then as you take steps and activity towards the divine, God will respond in some way to you. And the Christian message says, no, Christ has already bridged that gap. God has done everything necessary already for you to be part of God's family. Your your only thing to do is to receive and respond. And this is why Paul is so emphatic to say God's action started way before I was ever on the scene. The language here echoes the call narratives of the Old Testament prophets. Both Isaiah and Jeremiah use this exact phrase, God called me before I was born. God chose me and called me by his marvelous grace. And so Paul's drawing this line between the ancient narrative of the prophets and his own ancestral faith and belief in Jesus. And in all of those cases, the call that God puts on their lives is a call not just for the Jews, but for Isaiah and Jeremiah and Paul. It's a call to the nations. They were to be messengers to people whom God did not yet, were not yet part of God's family. And Paul's saying and drawing his own story into that and connecting with that and saying, it's not about what I did or was doing before that somehow then God was like, oh wow, that Paul guy, he's super zealous. Boy, if I could have him on my team, that'd be super. He says, no, no, no. God's initiative started so long before I ever came on the scene He was in God's grace. I needed to respond to that. But then, Paul continues and says, the often missed part of his story. And he talks to his his readers here about a time period in his life where after he came to faith, he needed to just figure it out and process it a little bit. And he actually logs off or logs out. He gets away from that Damascus Road experience, which was so dramatic, and he has to think it through. Let's keep reading Galatians 1, 16, and going forward. He says, when this happened to me, I didn't rush out 
to consult with any human being, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to consult with those who were apostles before I was. Instead, I went away into Arabia, into the desert. And then later I returned to the city of Damascus. And then three years later, I went to Jerusalem to get to know Peter, who was one of the early leaders in Jerusalem in the Christian movement, who was a disciple of Jesus. I stayed with him for 15 days. And the only other apostle I met at that time was James, the Lord's brother. And so he's, he's saying to people here, listen, God gave me a revelation. God gave me a mission and commission. I knew I was to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. But before I got just passionately thrown into that, I needed to get some things sorted. I needed to learn some things. I needed to grow. I needed to explore and experience uh, some things and be mentored a little bit. And so he goes out into the desert and then he returns to Damascus to preach. And one of the things that I think we can overlook in our own lives, and I know I'm certainly guilty of this, is that it's very important for us to know that we need to do business with God before we can do business for God. We need to spend time with God before we get all activistic and busy out in the world doing things for God. Any fruitful and lasting ministry that God allows you by God's grace to experience will almost always be the fruit and the overflow of a deep and rich encounter with Jesus. Power for witness and mission comes from that quiet place of reflection where you sit at Jesus' feet and you pay attention to what God's saying to you today and each day. And that's why you hear us here at Jericho refer so often to uh, getting engaged with the scriptures outside of Sunday morning because that's a place of transformation where God is going to speak to you. And so it's why uh, we do something here called Project 345 and it's, it's in the app. You can look at it anytime. And on that's called that because on average, it takes three minutes and 45 seconds to read through the average chapter in the New Testament. And so it's, it's a worthwhile investment to try and make that several times a week. And sometimes it's, it's easy to get discouraged and think, oh, I can never do that every day. It's a five-day uh, a, a week reading plan. So you got a couple grace days in there. And if I miss more than that, I don't, I don't beat myself up. I don't try to catch up. I just jump right in back where I'm at and where we're all at on that. Uh, and that's why we invest time and energy in things like Mike's leading our youth right now through a Bible reading plan that was launched this last week. Uh, or that's why Jenna and Caitlin will be leading a group on Wednesday morning at Starbucks that huddles together and reads and journals together. So if that's a new thing for you and you want to engage with that, we've got resources and would love to help you do that. And so you can come and talk to myself or any one of our staff and we'd, we'd love to get you connected and processing and engaging with God's word outside of Sunday mornings. Because Paul here is focusing on getting a sense of grounding 
and focus in his relationship with Jesus. He's practicing a discipline of retreat, of going away. And again, he's mirroring his activities after the ancient prophets, Elijah. In fact, his journey is the same journey that Elijah makes. He says he went to Arabia. That's where Sinai is. Sinai is the mountain where upon Exodus, where God rescued and redeemed God's people from Egypt and from slavery, God met them at Sinai. And then Elijah, when Elijah is discouraged in a moment where he feels totally defeated, he goes and meets God at Sinai in the desert. And God speaks hope and healing into Elijah's life. And so Paul says, I did the same thing. In the language of Psalm 46, verse 10, the invitation that God gives us is be still, quiet yourself down, know that I am God. And for me, I'm not always very successful at this because personality-wise, some of you are wired up as contemplatives. But for me, I'm wired up as an activist. And so slowing down, making space for silence and solitude feels to me like I'm not getting things done in a meaningful way. But I try, when I get up each day, to just create a space in my day where I'm quiet and where I'm just listening to God. So for me, that looks like getting up earlier than others in the house. Now that works for me because I'm a morning person. Some of you like, oh, that would never work for me. That's okay. It's not about the time. It's about the space that you can try and create. And for me, the other discipline that I try to practice is I try and get away from the office for one day out of the month and just try and get to a place where I can hear God more clearly and quiet my soul down and spend a day praying, listening to God's voice, praying for you, praying for the church, uh, praying with our staff sometimes. And as I see this day coming in my calendar... I always try to think of excuses to cancel that day. Oh, it's pretty busy. I should probably stick close by. I have a couple appointments that I'm not going to get in. If I don't, oh. and, and that day, I still resist that day because my wiring is towards the activistic sense. But when I'm faithful to get away and practice retreat, I always come back with a renewed sense of clarity and peace and stillness in my soul that I've heard from God. And so I think what I see in Paul's experience here is that it's important for you and for me to create room for our souls to breathe, to process things that we're learning. And for Paul, he just said, I, I had to go away to the desert to let this settle and shake out a bit. And maybe for you it means, you know what, a commitment to just getting up a few minutes earlier in the day and before you jump right in to your day, just spending a time, even three, four, five minutes in silence, just saying, okay, God, I'm here. 
Do you have anything you want to say to me about today? Maybe for you, you say on, my, on your commute, instead of listening to the radio or the news, you say, okay, I'm just going to, I'm going to actually turn that off. Or maybe you want to listen to and engage with an audio Bible or scripture in that time and just spend it trying to hear from God in an intentional way. Maybe if you're a parent, you go to school a few minutes earlier to get a better parking place so you don't have to wait in the big line for pickup. And maybe for you, you take those few minutes and just sit in the car and use that as a mini retreat to get alone with God and pray. Maybe you journal a little bit. Find whatever it is that works for you so that you can create that space for your soul to breathe so that you can do meaningful and lasting business for God because you have been with God and heard what it is that God's invited you to do. And for Paul, that was important. We see Jesus practicing it regularly as well. Then Paul finishes his testimony on the after and what the impact of that encounter with Jesus did in his life. So let's look at verse 20 and through to the end of the chapter. Paul says, I declare before God that what I'm writing to you is not a lie. He validated it, in other words, with Peter and with James. He's going to talk about that more in subsequent chapters. But after I went north, after that visit to Jerusalem and after my time in the desert, I went north into the provinces of Syria and Cilicia. And the churches in Christ that are in Judea, they didn't know me personally, but all they knew was that people were saying, the one who used to persecute us is now preaching the very faith he tried to destroy. And they praised God because of me. See, Paul says that his conversion experiences resulted in other people declaring and giving glory to God. In other words, Though conversion or salvation is always a personal encounter with Christ, it's never a private thing. Conversion is a personal internal event. That's why sometimes people will use the language of inviting Jesus into your life or into your heart. But it's never meant to stay that way. God did not call you into God's family just for you. The fruit of of true conversion will be that not only you, but other people give glory to God. The fruit of true conversion is mission. Paul simply could not keep this message about Jesus and the encounter he'd had to Jesus as a private event, thinking about how great this was for him, that he was now part of Jesus' family and he was on team Jesus. Last week, I shared a little bit with you about Sometimes how I get nervous to share about Christ with my new neighbors. And so after last weekend, I thought, you know, I'm going to pray about this. I'm going to ask God to just give me wisdom and, and God, give me particularly an open door to share. And so this week, one day I pulled up uh, to the front of the house and I see the name, new neighbor outside. So I went over and I introduced myself to her. And first words out of her mouth, hey, do you know the reverend that lives next door? My daughter's been asking about going to church. Can you introduce us? 
yeah, I know him. <laughs> See, I prayed for an open door, and God was so gracious. God just kicked the door wide open. And so it was a reminder to me, what doors are you asking God that God would open for you? See, friends, saving faith is not about seeing how many blessings Jesus is going to pour into your life as a result of your salvation. Conversion is not about you being plucked off a dark and hopeless pathway that you have been on, although that could be true. You and I have been saved and redeemed for a purpose, and that purpose is to declare the goodness of the one who called us out of darkness into his marvelous life so that you can proclaim the good news of Jesus to others. Church, we've been placed here in this city, in this building, in this location, so that the lost will be welcomed home, so that the weak can say, I now found strength in Christ Jesus. I love how contemporary author James K.A. Smith expresses this. He says, conversion is not a personal solution. Conversion is not a magical transport home, some kind of flu powder to heaven. Conversion doesn't pluck you off the road. It changes how you travel. Because you travel now with an attentiveness to your fellow pilgrims around you. Our calling, our mission... Your mission is to make a difference in the lives of your fellow travelers, not simply to have a better journey with a new set of eyes. Ruth Ellen and the team are going to come and lead us in songs that help us respond to Christ and respond to what we've heard in God's word. And as they come and do that, I want to ask you a few questions for reflection this morning. And they're all phrased in the negative. So you do need to hear what I'm not saying. The first one is this. Friends, do not compare your conversion experience to others. Especially not to Paul's. His level of drama is off the charts. And so yours may not reflect that. God saved you if you're part of God's family. God saved you in the way that God chose to save you. It may not have been as dramatic as your neighbor, but do not discount it. It's all grace. The second thing is this. No matter how you came, that you did not come and you cannot come on the basis of merit or works. If you're part of God's family, you have come on the basis of grace and grace alone. And you might be here today, and for you, maybe your history has looked at it as a balancing scale, and you thought, well, if I could just do enough good works, maybe 50% plus one, I could somehow get God to the place where at that moment, when I meet him, I'll say, but God, look at all this stuff, this good works that I've done. You may not have consciously expressed it like that, but all of your life you've been striving and striving and striving. And sometimes that carries with you beyond that moment of conversion. So you take it with you actually into your Christian life and experience. 
And maybe for you today, the reminder that Jesus wants to give is, friend, I have done all of the work necessary for you to be part of my family. All you need to do is to cease striving and grasping and working and hoping and simply say, Jesus, I receive and live in your grace that you have so graciously offered and given me. The third question might be for you if you're wired up like me and you're more of an activist. And I would say to the activists amongst us, do not try to do great things for God without spending deep time with God. That disconnect between those two things, your work that God's called you to in your workplace, in your home, in the world, it will rip your soul apart if you do not ground that in a deep place of connectivity with Jesus. And so maybe for you today, the item uh, that you need to do in action is to reorder your world and your calendar so that you have enough time alone with God to sustain the work that God's invited you to do. And that's one of the great group gifts and one of the reasons why we have small groups that are launching this fall to help you do that. And the final encouragement that I would give, and this is also for Jericho as well, and that is do not let your faith become solely a private experience. One of the reasons why we're knocking out walls in this place and renovating it is so that we can be a light to the neighbors and to our city. So more people can come through these doors and effectively interact with us and have a higher chance of encountering Jesus. And maybe for you, your faith has become something so private that it's something people around you don't know about. Your fellow students, they may think, oh, they're a nice person or your fellow uh, co-workers, but have they seen and would they attribute that to the saving work that Christ has done in you? Maybe it's time for you to pray for an open door and say, God, I want to be bold in the way that I declare my faith, but I don't know how to go about doing that. Would you open the door for me? And then when God does it, walk through it. Don't let your faith become too private. I'm gonna pray for us. I'm gonna invite those who are part of our prayer response team to make their way uh, to the back. And today that's uh, Tyler and Anne Marie and Meg and myself. And we would love to pray with you and join you in what God is doing in your life. So let me pray for us. God, we ask that in this season of our lives, in this journey that you have invited us to be on with you, you would give us great boldness and faith. God, I pray for those that are maybe here this morning who have never said yes to being a part of your family. I pray that today would be the day for them, that they would say yes to you and that this would be their moment. And God, I pray for those of us for whom that moment is long distant and maybe it's become stale or tattered or the impact of it ceases to impress us anymore. Remind us of the wondrous gift of your grace and give us courage to declare that to people around us. In the name of Jesus, we pray, amen.
Amen. I invite you to stand with me if you're able, and we'll respond in worship. We have two songs that we'll sing.